The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. Uh, the inspired word that we have in front of us through your scriptures. We thank you, Lord, that this book is a revelation of your son, Jesus, in all of its fullness. And we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who brings it alive in our hearts. And so we pray, Lord, that as we come around it, that you will open our eyes and our hearts to receive all that you have for us, that we might behold your glory and your wonder revealed in your son this morning through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Imagine with me for a moment the scenario of your life being an open book or a video that everyone had the opportunity to view. From the moment you were born to the moment you, you die. Uh, there was a, sh- a movie a, a few years ago called The Truman Show, which was based on that premise. Now imagine you being Truman, and from the moment you were born the moment you died, every moment of your life was broadcast and beamed to the world. I wonder what feeling that would evoke in you, what what sense that would create in your heart. If you're anything like me, it would be sheer terror, embarrassment, maybe shame, maybe a whole bunch of emotions like that. And our passage today is grounded in that kind of context So we started at 4.14, but Arlette referred to 4.12 and 4.13, which is the broader context, the immediate context, where the writer reminds us that all of us live that way before the all-seeing eyes of God. And not only is he all-seeing like the director of the Truman Show, but we're actually accountable to him. Now, whatever sense or feeling that the Truman Show idea might evoke, what the writer is anticipating is that once he said that, verse 13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That that would strike sheer terror into the heart of his readers. And so he goes on to kind of almost, once he's said that, kind of go, oh, this is probably going to freak you out. And so then the next thing he begins to talk about is almost this idea of, well, hold on, hold on. Before you freak out and panic, I want to tell you what God's done to help you live with that. And that's this idea of the high priest or the priest or the sacrificial system. And he goes on to to tell them about this incredible person that we have in Jesus Christ who is our high priest but he's drawing on a whole history of theology that goes all the way back to the Old Testament where God this holy righteous God that sees and knows everything that every single human being has ever done how that holy God and us who are sinful and broken can live together can coexist And the whole Levitical system and the Old Testament priesthood and the sacrificial system was designed to help ungodly, sinful, rebellious people live with a holy God in the land that he had set apart for them. 
And so he begins this kind of discourse, and many Bible commentators, particularly in this passage, have really struggled to see the structure and the format because the writer seems to jump all over the place, and he kind of says things he's already said, and he says things he's going to say even more, and it's kind of really all over the shop a little bit. But all of it is around this idea that he wants these people to know you, you don't need to fear because God has done something about this. And that is to provide for us a way that we can live in security before our holy God. And so he, he begins in chapter 5, and I'm going to come back to uh, chapter 4, verse 14 at the end, because it's the application of the truth that he begins to articulate. But from chapter 5, as he begins, he's now wanting to unpack for these people the, the, or re, a reminder of what the priesthood was. It's almost like he's, he's wanting them to see what the prototype was. You we're all familiar with the concept of a prototype. It's when somebody's pr- putting out a new product or a, or, or a new invention, they have a prototype prototype, which is not the full model. It's kind of the first installment. It's like, this is what we've put together. And here it is. This is the design concept. This is what it's going to look like. And then they keep working on it, keep working on it until they release the actual product. And so he wants them to see that God has, what God has done in the priesthood with showing them what the prototype was meant to be and what the prototype was meant to achieve. And he articulates a whole bunch of things about Aaron's priesthood. The high priesthood. And so I'm just going to kind of move really quickly through these. And and then we're going to look at the ultimate model, which is Jesus. And that's where he wants to get to. Say, you look at the prototype and now look at how Jesus is better than Aaron because he's the ultimate. And again, there's seven things that he mentions, but I'm not going to focus on all of them. I'm just going to focus on three of them because four of the ones, the first ones I'll mention, he picks, he's already kind of talked about earlier on in, in, in chapters one, two, and three. And, and then some of the other things he mentions in these first four, he's going to pick up in more detail as the book kind of unfolds. And so we're going to come back to those in more detail. But three I want to particularly focus on because they relate to the application he draws out himself in 4.14 and 15. So that's kind of where we're going to go. So let's look at the prototype. What does he say about Aaron? Well, verse 1 of chapter 5, every high priest is selected from among the people. This is about identification. One of the criteria, one of the requirements of the, the high priest was that he was meant to represent the people. He was meant to be like the people. And so he tells us that Aaron was a sinner. He had to offer sacrifices for his own sin. He tells us that Aaron was someone who was weak. And he therefore was able to deal gently with people because he understood what it was like to be like them. So there was this identification. And he was selected from within Israel. It wasn't from a different nation. So there was this solidarity between the priest and the people. The second thing he tells us is that Aaron was appointed. He was appointed. And as he finishes in verse 4, he says, no one takes this honor on himself. The, The priesthood was not something that somebody could just decide, I'm going to be a priest. Not in Israel anyway. It was something that he goes on to say, it was as a result of the calling of God, verse 4. The appointment of the high priest. And then he goes on to talk about this idea of what the high priest was meant to do. This idea of representation. What did Aaron do? Well, he was appointed. Why? Verse 1. To represent the people. To represent the people. And there were two aspects to this representation. One was where Aaron represented the nation of Israel as a high priest before God. And he performed all these rituals and sacrifices for the people. Uh, the Day of Atonement being the most significant and most the powerful high point in Israel's religious um, observances. 
He was supposed to represent the nation before God. But the other aspect of the, the representation is he was supposed to represent God to the people as well. Because we're told in this passage that part of his role, he was able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and he was meant to be caring for or helping those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. So we're told he's meant to represent the people in matters related to God. There's that idea of representing the people before God. But then he was also supposed to teach the people God's ways. And we're told that in Leviticus 10, for instance, where part of his high priestly ministry was to actually instruct the people in God's ways and in God's laws. And that, uh, the Leviticus 10 context is when people had rebelled and, and God judges them. And part of Aaron's ministry was to instruct them in how God was calling the nation to live. So represent the people to God and represent God to the people. Um, the last um, um, aspect, I guess, is the ministry of, of Aaron. And that ministry, we're told here, is to offer sacrifices. It's to offer gifts for his own sin and for the, the sins of the, the people. That, that was a, a very fundamental part of his ministry. Because it was through the sacrifices that God was going to atone or cover over the sin of Israel. It was through sacrifices that God would forgive the nation. It was through the sacrifices that the people could continue to live before a holy God and walk with him and live in the land. And so that was Aaron's fundamental ministry to make it okay, as it were, or safe, as it were, for a holy God to walk with broken, sinful people. But even in spite of all of Aaron's ministry, the people were always limited in how much access they could have to God. Only he could go into the holy place where God's was enthroned, as it were, between the wings of the cherubim. And even then, it was only once a year. The people were never allowed to go in there. They had to stand afar off. And so his ministry just allowed for the people to live in the land and to continue to, to know God and to be in fellowship with God from a distance. So that's the prototype. And then we move into the second part, where he's now talking about Jesus being the ultimate he starts in verse 5 and he says, in the same way. So he's saying that Jesus does all of this stuff that Aaron used to do, the prototype. In the same way, Jesus, and notice he says that Christ here. And in the book, as you'll find, when he talks about Jesus, his primary focus is to the human incarnation of the Son. Jesus, the Christ, who walked among us as the embodied, embodied incarnate Son of God. When he uses Christ, it's mainly a reference to the Son or the second person of the Trinity. And so you'll see throughout the book where he will interchange using the, the titles of Jesus and title of Christ and Son to focus on different aspects of the second person of the Trinity. And so he says, Christ did not take on himself this glory of becoming the high priest. But he was also called by God to this. But that's where the similarities end. From this point on, notice he introduces this idea with a but. And we saw that when we looked at chapter 1 and, and chapter 2. And he does that again. But God said to him. And so now he's saying, yeah, Aaron and Jesus were both called. But now is when their paths diverge radically in different directions. 
But God said to him, you are my son. Today I have become your father. So the first thing, we've encountered this before, that Jesus is better than Aaron because he has a better title. He's a better person. He's not just another human being called from among the people to represent them before God. He is the son. He is not just a high priest. We're told in chapter 4 that he is the great high priest. And the way the language is working, the high priest kind of means great priest. And so when the author says great priest, great priest. He's kind of saying Jesus is the ultimate. He's the great, great high priest. So Jesus has a, a, a greater title. He's a greater, he's a greater person. He's a great, got a greater name. The second thing he says is that, that he has, he's a priest forever. So he's got a more significant, powerful, enduring tenure or a term. See, Aaron's priesthood only lasted as long as his life. When Aaron died, his son took over. And the priesthood, the great, the high priesthood was passed down from father to son, from father to son. Jesus' priesthood is forever. There is no end to his tenure. And again, you'll see that he'll pick this up, particularly in chapter 7, where he mentions it over and over again, that Jesus' priesthood is forever. He says that Jesus' priesthood is better than Aaron's because it is a better calling. It's in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is a strange character, and he's from Genesis. And we, we see him uh, encountering Abraham when Abraham's come back from this victory. He's this mysterious figure, and the writer will spend the entire of chapter 7 unpacking how Jesus is like Melchizedek. But suffice it to say for right now that one of the most significant things about Melchizedek that makes Jesus like Melchizedek and greater than Aaron is that Melchizedek was not just a priest. He was also a king. He's a king and a priest. Aaron was only a priest. And throughout the Old Testament, kings tried to take the place of a priest. And every time they did that, it ended really badly. We see that with Saul. When he tried to offer sacrifices and was rebuked by God. And we see that with other kings of Israel. When they would go into the temple and try to do the work of the priest, they were judged severely. So here the writer is saying, Jesus is better than Aaron because he's not just a priest. He's also a king. He's the king priest figure that's joined in the one person. So he's a priest. He's a priest forever. He's in the order of Melchizedek. And he has a better ministry because in verse 8, he says that Jesus has become, the Christ has become for us the source of eternal salvation. Eternal salvation. See, Aaron's ministry only enabled the people to live in the land for their lifetime. That's it. But what Jesus does for us is to bring the life of the eternal, the, the forever life, the God life to us through his ministry. Jesus is better because he offers and gives us a better ministry. Now, those were the first four quick ones. And here's the ones I want to go a little bit slower. Jesus is better than Aaron because he is a better representation, a better identification. He has a better identification with us. And if you like, is that the first one? I think that's the first one. It's like you can have degrees of identification with people. So I'm, I'm Sri Lankan, and there's a certain identification I can have with people who come from the subcontinent of Asia. We can kind of go, there's similarities, there's, there's things in the weather that we can kind of relate to from people, you know, from Malaysia or Singapore or places like that. There's that identification. But then if they've actually come from the same country, there's a greater degree of identification that I can kind of relate, and they can relate to me in a different way. But, and if they were kind of grew up in the same 
community that I grew up in, then there's a greater kind of connection. And they go, oh, I remember that shop that we used to go. You remember that? There's that kind of conversation. If they went to the same school as you, then it's like, oh, yes, you remember that building and you remember how the playground was there and, and you can have those kinds of conversations. And then if they were in the same class as you at the same time as you, then the connection is even better. It's like, oh, remember that teacher and remember when that happened and remember that incident that we shared. There's a sense of solidarity that comes from with degrees of identification. And what the writer is saying is that, yeah, Aaron was able to identify with us because he was another human, but Jesus is able to identify with us at such a deeper level. He's, there's a greater identification. And he kind of goes through four different things that makes Jesus even more identified with us. The first thing he says is that Jesus was tempted in every way. Tempted in every way. Aaron It was never said that Aaron was tempted like that. In fact, all we're told is that he shared the same weaknesses as us. But Jesus was tempted in every way. Now, that's not saying that Jesus literally was tempted in every single way. Because I'm sure Jesus would not understand in the sense of what it was to be a woman, for instance, and experience the temptations of a woman or a single mom or, you know, whatever the specifics are. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is that Jesus experienced the root causes of all temptation that are consistent for every single human being. Young, old, male, female, regardless of what culture you come from. Jesus experienced to the fullest extent every root of temptation. And that's why he can identify with us in a deeper level. Uh, One Bible commentator said this, His whole life was one of temptation. And the very fact that he had powers and abilities which we do not possess only added to the stress. Because again, sometimes people think, yeah, but come on, Jesus was God as well. Surely he didn't experience temptation like I experienced because he was God. Well, this writer explains it this way. He was the fullest and most vivid personality that this world has ever known. And the very richness of his human nature exposed him all the more fully to the assaults of temptation. That's why the writer can say Jesus was tempted in every way. The best way to help me understand this, and I've used this illustration before, is those massive ropes that hold ships to the dock. You know, if you've been down to Circular Quay, you've probably seen them. If you've been on a ferry, you've probably seen them. Now, those ropes experience pressure like a weaker rope would not ever experience. Right? Because you put a weaker rope on there, the moment that barge or that boat shifts a little bit, it just snaps. But those ropes will experience the strain and the pressure to an infinite degree because they're not going to break. That's what the writer is saying that Jesus was like. Because Jesus was human and divine, he was going to never, ever break. And he goes on to tell us that. And because of that, he experienced temptation to the fullest degree. So there's a greater identification. The other thing he goes on to say is he was tempted in every way, but without sin. We're told here that Aaron clearly was a sinner. He needed to offer sacrifices for his own sin. Now, what's the significance of that? See, yes, as one sinner, I can relate to another sinner, but sin also corrupts my own heart. And my compassion for you and my love for you is not always going to be pure. Because my own sinfulness, as I deal with my own stuff, can make me either prideful because I'm not struggling with that, what you're struggling with, and makes me feel I'm better than you, and I'm just kind of going intolerant of your weakness. And what is your problem? Come on, you get over that weak, sinful person. It can do that, or it can take me to the other extreme where I'm so aware of my own sinfulness that it leads me to be self-loathing. 
And that doesn't help me to sympathize and empathize with you. So Aaron's always going to be limited. But Jesus, because he never sinned, his love and his compassion for you and I will always be pure. Will always be untainted by sin. So Jesus identifies with us in that way. And and another way that Jesus identifies with us is that we're told here that verse 7, during the days of Jesus' life on earth. And so that's a reference to the ministry of Jesus on earth in his humanity, walking the streets of Palestine. And we see in the Gospels that Jesus engaged and encountered with people of all kinds. But the high priest, we read in Leviticus 21, wasn't allowed to interact with lepers, wasn't allowed to interact with the unclean, wasn't allowed to interact with people who uh, were dead bodies or with families of people who were mourning. There was a distance and a separation. And the writer says, but Jesus, we see, he touched women who had issues of blood. He touched lepers. He touched prostitutes. He touched tax collectors and sinners. There was a greater degree of coming alongside us in the person of Jesus, which makes him better than Aaron. A greater identification. And the last one, I can't remember. He experienced ultimate suffering and death. And that's what he goes on to say at the, at the end of this passage, that he learned obedience from what he suffered. Jesus experienced the total abandonment of God. We're not really told in this passage that Aaron really experienced any kind of suffering remotely like Jesus. And again, because Jesus was the ultimate human and the ultimate representation of the Father, which was the next thing we're going to look at, he experienced the suffering of of the abandonment of God to the extent that you and I will never experience. And so he's able to identify with us in a more profound way. The second kind of thing that he goes on to tell us is that there is a better representation that Jesus provides. We're told here that Jesus is the ultimate human. He was perfectly submitted, totally obedient to God, even in the face of incredible suffering. And that takes us back to the garden where we're seeing Jesus, as we're told here, praying and crying out with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And yet he's, he's learning obedience. And I need to explain that. It doesn't mean that Jesus was disobedient. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that Jesus understood or experienced firsthand what it meant to be obedient completely to the end as a human. Jesus went through it entirely, completely submitted and totally obedient to the Father, even to the very end. So he learned obedience. He, he experienced suffering and he was made perfect. We've looked at that phrase again from earlier on in, in chapter 2. It's the same phrase that Jesus was made adequate and sufficient as our Savior because of what he experienced. So Jesus is the ultimate human who was completely obedient. And so he can represent us before God because he did not have any sin of his own. He did not need to, and we're going to hear this, offer any sin, any offering for his own sin. And so he could offer himself. But he's also the perfect representation of God to us. And we saw that in chapter 1. You see, Aaron could only teach them God's law. But Jesus is the living word of John chapter 1. He's the radiance of God's glory, Hebrews chapter 1. He's the exact representation of God. He's the son that was walking among us. He's the, the fullness of God's revelation, the ultimate revelation of God to us perfect representation of the father and that's why he says when you see me you see the father Aaron could never make that claim the last one I want to look at is Jesus's position it's a better position you see 
In Numbers chapter 20, we're told that Aaron, we know where he is, well, sort of. He's buried on the top of Mount Hor somewhere in Palestine. That's where he's buried. Numbers 20 tells us that. But the writer here tells us where Jesus is. He's not in a tomb. You can go and visit the tomb and it's empty because he's not there. And we're told here that Jesus has ascended into heaven, verse 14 of chapter 4. And that speaks of going through the heavens, as it were, to enter into the very realm of God. And we'll go on to see that that's significant because Jesus is continuing in his high priestly ministry in that heavenly tabernacle. He's ascended. But not only that, we're told that he's enthroned. Verse 16 of chapter 4, let us then approach God's throne. Jesus is on that throne. He's enthroned. We're told in chapter 1, verse 3, that after providing purification for sin, which is priestly language, he sat down. So he's not just enthroned, he's actually seated, which is a a, a biblical metaphor for job done, finished. It is finished, it is done. And so Jesus is sitting down, having now completed his ministry as the high priest. We're told that he's seated at the right hand, chapter 1, verse 8, verse 13, uh, verse 3, that he's seated at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. They're all phrases that describe that he's in the most powerful position and place. You see, it's like in in our family, we have this thing we call different parking spots. You know, depending on when you go shopping center in Westfield, depending on how close you get, it's, it's either, you know, if it's kind of on the same level and maybe maybe 20 spots down from the door, well, that's kind of a VIP kind of spot. And you think that's pretty good. If you get within the first five, that's kind of, you think this is rock star parking. But if you get like the spot right near the door, that's like royalty parking, you know. So we kind of, you know, play this thing. That's kind of what the writer is getting at. Jesus He's got the the royal parking spot. He's at the right hand of the majesty of heaven. Aaron is nowhere there. He's like out there somewhere. He's not even parked the car yet. He's just... He's still still in, in the queue of traffic trying to get in. Jesus has this ultimate position. And, and, and that's what the writer wants us to grab a hold of. And so in light of all of that, let's come back to chapter 4, verse 14, where he draws out this application. Therefore, since we have a great high priest. So that's right. He's saying, because all of what I've said is true, because Jesus, our high priest, has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, that, that statement there is a summary of everything I've just said. What is the first application? Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Let us hold firmly. That, 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 that idea speaks of endurance. It speaks of standing firm in your confession. But it's more than that. It also speaks of profession, of declaring, of proclaiming this great message to others in the midst of opposition, in the midst of ridicule, in the midst of insult, in the midst of challenge and difficulty and hardship. We stand firm and declare that Jesus is greater. I remember when our kids were little, you know, sometimes they'd grab a hold of the phone or, you know, a remote control or something like that. And one of the greatest strategies to get that off them was to give them a toy or give them something else and they'd kind of trade and kind of hand over the, the phone for, for, you know, goofy or plastic toy or whatever. It's because they didn't fully understand. They're like, oh, that's more colorful and makes noises. And, and the writer of the Hebrews is like, you guys are like that. You've got this amazing thing in your grasp. And now you're wanting to go back to Aaron? 
You're wanting to go back to the prototype? You're wanting to give that up for Goofy? Like seriously? Hold firmly to what you have in Christ. Hold firmly onto Jesus. Hold firmly onto the great high priest, the son who is sitting enthroned. Don't give up on him. And don't be embarrassed or ashamed to stand your ground and confess it in the midst of hardship. Follow Jesus' example that he talks about here, who was obedient to the point of death who in the midst of great suffering and the very abandonment of the Father went through with dying for you and for me. Hold firmly on to him. Follow his example. The second application he draws out, verse 16, let us then, there it is again, same phrase, let us hold firmly, let us then approach God's throne of grace. And that's why it's important that he talks about Jesus being the priest and the king. Because see, Jesus as the priest He's forgiven us. He's given us access like Aaron could never do. He's brought us into the very holy of holies. But now as the king, he's sitting enthroned. We don't come to a priest alone. We come to a priest king. We come to a king who has authority. We come to a king who chapter 1 tells us is is going to have every one of his enemies placed under his feet. We come to a king who's sitting above every principality and power and ruler and domain. Ephesians 1 tells us that. We're coming to a king who's going to come in all his glory and power and triumph one day. We're coming to a king who has conquered sin and Satan and death itself through his own resurrection. We're coming to a king who reigns in authority and power. And that's why he says you can come confidently. You can come confidently because you will receive grace, which is, will cover over your past failures and your past sins, but you'll also receive mercy and help for what you need today, moving forward from now, what you're going to need to stand firm and to stand against the opposition. You can receive that from the king. How? Guys, if you, Tim, if you want to jump up. How can we receive that? Well, again, he takes us to the model of Jesus It's through prayer. It's through prayer. We see Jesus, verse 7, offering prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Now, again, there's been a lot of debate as to what is the saving from death because the writer goes on to say, because he was heard. So is it referring to Jesus not going to the cross? Well, it doesn't seem like it because he went to the cross. So in what sense was he heard? Well, one couple of writers, you know, feel like that that's a reference to not being saved from from death, but saved through death. In other words, to resurrection. And that prayer was heard because Jesus was raised. And it kind of fits the context because as we go, the writer makes a lot of the fact that Jesus is not dead, that he's risen and he's alive forevermore. But others feel that it possibly could mean, make a, be a reference to the fact that Jesus was asking for strength to endure death, to face the cross. And I want to say, well, does it have to be either? Can it be both? Absolutely. I, I want to say that maybe the, because of the confidence we have in our priest king, we can come before our God and we can confidently pray and ask for his intervention. But we can also ask for strength to endure. Because we are confident that like Jesus, we too will be raised from the dead. No matter what happens. And that's why the writer can say, stand firm. 
stand for him. And as he goes on to talk about chapter 11 and chapter 12, he talks about these heroes of faith, some of them who did not receive what they were believing for, and yet they stood firm and they held on. Why? Because they were sure of the better city to come. They were sure of the resurrection. They were sure that Jesus, the priest king, is alive and he's got them. And so they could endure. They could go through the hardship as they continued to keep their eyes on Jesus and look to Him. Prayer, so powerful. And one writer said, the ultimate arrogance is our prayerlessness. Because it says to God, I don't need you today. I don't need you today. I can do life on my own. And the question that we need to ask ourselves, if if Jesus being the divine incarnate Son prayed, And here we're told, prayed in the midst of his opposition and challenge and hardship. What makes us think we don't need to? And Jesus has made the way. We can come confidently with full assurance because we're forgiven and because he's our enthroned king who's waiting to give us all that we need to stand firm and to make our profession of faith. Why don't you bow your heads, close your eyes. Jesus, Holy Spirit, come and speak to our hearts, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. We worship you, Jesus. the Lord saying to you this morning? What's the Holy Spirit convicting you about, challenging you about? Maybe you've not been coming before the throne of God because you've been riddled with guilt and condemnation. Maybe the Holy Spirit is reminding you, it's finished. It's done. There is no condemnation. You have an eternal salvation through the priesthood of Jesus who lives forever so come come boldly don't hang back don't stand back or maybe you've been trying to do life on your own deal with the challenges the problems in your own strength and the Holy Spirit is saying will you humble yourself and recognize your need for King Jesus to give you the grace and the mercy and the help and the strength you need Will you come before Him in expectancy and faith that He will move and He will empower you to stand firm? Thank you, Jesus. Why don't we stand? And let's just worship Jesus, our priest-king. And as we do, if you'd like prayer, I really sense this morning that there were people here that were struggling with things. And I encourage you, don't walk away thinking, yeah, I'll be okay. I'll be all right. I don't need prayer. No, come because Jesus wants to meet you. God wants to touch you this morning. And rather than staying in your seat, I encourage you, come and let us pray for you. It's a sickness in your body or a family need or a financial need. Whatever it is you're going through, come and let us pray with you and, and believe that King Jesus will move powerfully in your life. So as we're singing, leave your seat and just come and let us pray with you this morning. Thank you, Jesus. You give life, 
you are.